Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We are back. Let's get right into it. We've got Michael Lombardi at about 12.30. We've got... Gary Myers in his book, How About Them Cowboys, at about the 24-minute mark. And other than that, I am just happy to be back after a two-week break. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a ratings on iTunes and a review. That would be awesome. They make me feel so happy. It's the off-season, and I am reinvigorated. I am ready to go. And not only in small part because I have discovered the Alliance of American Football. I was not ready for the level of excitement over this new league, and yet there it is. People are just happy to have football. It was all of one week, and they couldn't handle it. They needed their football back, so they responded, and people watched in droves as the Alliance of American Football opened up Saturday night. More people actually watched AAF football then they did ABC's primetime matchup of the Houston Rockets versus the Oklahoma City Thunder. Now look, same thing happened when the XFL started back, gosh, what was it, almost two decades ago now? Um, or a decade ago, about a decade ago or so, when Vince McMahon's fledgling XFL, the first go-around, debuted. A lot of people tuned in for the novelty of it. I, I think it's interesting that this probably had way less publicity than the original XFL, and... Maybe partly because of that, people received it pretty well. It wasn't billed as being some kind of competitor to the NFL. In fact, the NFL is actually working alongside them somewhat. They are going to be broadcasting some of the games on NFL Network. They're not financial partners as of yet, but they're giving them a boost along the way. So many of these players in the AAF have actually been on NFL rosters. These are guys that you might see play in the preseason of various teams. And then they're out there. And frankly, the quality of football was pretty good. The thing that I think got a lot of people excited was, A, obviously the quality of football was pretty good. Look, this isn't you're not going to confuse this with the excitement of big-time college football or the level of play of the NFL to any degree. But there were competent football players out there. Some of the rule changes are what people were most excited about because it seemed to give a flow to the game that you don't get in the NFL. The play clock is 30 seconds compared to the NFL's 40 seconds. Although, um, I'll be honest with you, I was checking in and out. It seemed like that wasn't always consistent. I don't know what the exact rules are on it. And some of you guys listening might actually have a better idea than I did. I, I kept checking in and increasingly checking in for longer amounts of time as I watched the San Antonio versus San Diego ga uh, game. I guess I'm a San Antonio guy for this year. We'll see what happens when the XFL comes around next year and Houston has its own team. But uh, the television timeouts are eliminated and there are 60% fewer commercials. So just frankly, a lot more football, a lot more bang for your buck. I, I wonder, you know, I, if this was the old times, the advertisers would say, well, no, I want everybody focused completely on me. 
where now we know with DVRs, you're going to the bathroom, you're coming back, you're fast-forwarding, you're pausing. It's hard to tell whether people are actually watching the commercials. So if you're watching live action while that game is there, at least well, that commercial is there at least subliminally, I think people, advertisers are just fine with that. One of the really interesting things that they do is that the onside kicks are replaced by the option to attempt a fourth and ten at the team's own 35-yard line. I can't remember those. I'm reading off of a Ross Tucker tweet. I could have sworn it was 4th and 12. Whatever. This is where I am with this. I don't have to pretend to be an expert on the AAF. I'm in it with you guys. I'm just learning as we go along. Uh, but instead of uh, like instead of an onside kick, you go for that 4th and long conversion, and then there's also the option to do that anytime you're down with two minutes left in the game. Uh, and there's, uh, there's it's like it's a real football play, but without people careening towards each other at breakneck speed. They got rid of kickoffs altogether. Teams just start with the ball at their own 25-yard line, unless you're in that situation where you're down with two minutes left to go. And I think one other particular situation, you can you can go for that fourth and long conversion. That, that lends a whole lot of excitement to it. Extra point kicks are gone, so every touchdowns followed by a two-point conversion. I'm not so certain about that one, just because uh, I don't want I don't want a, a a game that has had like two teams score two touchdowns. Maybe have one of the have the the game decided already in advance because they had missed a two-point conversion. You know what I'm saying? I'd rather have some symmetry in a rather equally played game until you get down to the end, and then if it comes down to a two-point conversion, I'm all about it. But now you could be seeing a scenario where hey, it's it's 14 to 12, and uh, there's just I I don't know I don't know I have to think my way through this one. The other big one was the transparent review process. They have a mic on the review official as the review official is up in the booth figuring out, kind of talking her way through it or his way through it. Like you're on uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire or something. You know, that's always that's the best part of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire is the way those guys talk their way to the answer and you can hear the thought process behind it. I find it fascinating when you watch the replay official do that. And uh, the other big thing, obviously, is the coaches wearing mics. We saw Mike Martz talking to one of his assistants about benching the quarterback. Uh, we saw Steve Spurrier make a joke. He called the play and said, hey, just make sure he catches it this time. And uh, it, that was a whole lot of fun. And I think there's so much potential for not only entertainment purposes, but I think the, the thing that struck me as I was watching some of the coaches on the open mic was how calm they are. In these high-stress, high-pressure situation. I had kind of forgotten about all of that because that, I, I watch more movies now than I actually watch coaches on the sideline that in these high-pressure, high-stress situations, the really good coaches are very calm about it, and they're just going about doing their job. Kind of like a fighter pilot is very, very calm in the midst of a whole lot of action. Really good coaches have to do that same thing. That's probably a great that's a great thing for young coaches to see because they're like I am now. They're seeing all this stuff on movies about how every big moment's a dramatic moment um, or you got to yell or you got to scream when the really good guys are thinking all the time. They're just always thinking. So that that those are the things that jumped out at me first. Um, the one thing that I think they're going to have to start doing is maybe <laughs> enforcing some of these headshots. There was that huge hit where the quarterback definitely got hit to the head because his helmet popped off. And uh, I, don't, I don't know how long that's going to hold up. 
I admire their courage and I admire the toughness of it. But as people have pointed out, we hate these new rules about how protected the quarterbacks are, but nobody wants to watch a backup quarterback. And I certainly don't want to watch a backup AAF quarterback. Whoever your quarterback is, please, please keep that guy in there because there are scant numbers of them whose names I recognize. So let's take care of the quarterbacks from that perspective. It does get me equally excited about what the XFL might bring because Vince McMahon is backing the second version of the XFL, and that's going to be a good league, I think, like this one. I don't like I say good, quote-unquote good league. I don't know exactly what that means other than that I think it's going to be run professionally. Oliver Luck is the commissioner, and I, I a lot of people haven't necessarily gotten that word yet, and I noticed that because when Bob Stoops – accepted the position of head coach for Dallas's XFL franchise, which begins play in 2020, there were a whole lot of people wondering what the hell he was doing. I think maybe this debut of the XFL sheds a little bit of light on it. You see Mike Martz out there. You see Steve Spurrier out there. You realize, okay, this is a this is a serious football league. You're coaching professionals. Some of these guys over the next couple of years might end up being – five-star recruit types, future NFL players who decide to leave college a little bit earlier, especially in the XFL. I think the AAF has uh, uh, is, is going to be more restrictive about it, but the XFL has so far said that they're wide open to signing underclassmen. So we'll see about that. But here's Bob Stoops explaining, Bob Stoops explaining exactly why he signed on with the XFL. When I stepped away uh, a couple years ago, um, you know, every one, you know, one of my major reasons, and I, I made it very clear, is I wanted my own time. You know, I wanted to be the boss of my own time and, 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 and live that way. And, and, you know, as the old saying goes, be careful what you wish for. You know, and all of a sudden I got to thinking after a couple of years, some days I've got too much time on my hands. And, you know, I'm, I'm guessing sometimes it's the wife that thinks you might have a little bit too much time on your hands, too. I'm always intrigued by football coaches, especially head football coaches at big-time colleges or NFL teams, are generally pretty high-strung dudes and uh, type-A personalities that need to have something to focus on. And if they're not golfers or obsessive over something else, they might start obsessing over other things either uh, around the house, maybe they're alcohol drinking, whatever it might be. I have no do- I have no clue what Bob Stoops tried to focus his attention on, but sometimes football is the absolute best thing because that's what you were born to do. So Bob Stoops and I think a bunch of other coaches over the next couple of years are going to get involved in this stuff. It'll be interesting to see how economically viable it is the AAF players are making about seventy-five grand per year, I believe. I don't know how much XFL players are going to make, but it's not bad coin compared to some of the other entry-level jobs there are out there. And especially, it's real genuine football. So you could see maybe some younger players who just need some time to develop, quarterbacks especially, maybe get a chance and get their way back in the door. Back in the day, NFL Europe was that avenue for a lot of players, guys that didn't make teams Ended up, you know, there were quite a few guys that ended up making out of the NFL rosters and doing well after spending some time in that incubator that was NFL Europe. Plus, without the uh, disadvantages to your playing career of European distractions, I would say advantages in terms of turning you into a well-rounded individual with sights and experiences from around the world, both with culture and women. Uh, And uh, they won't get that necessarily in Memphis like they would in Amsterdam, but it's still uh, it's still a good learning experience. So 
we had our last visit with Michael Lombardi on Mad Radio, and uh, we talked about a whole bunch of stuff, including just how feasible it is to emulate the Patriots. Everybody wants to be the Patriots. Is it as simple as copying that template, or is it more complex than that? Because, look, I see a lot of I see a lot of Belichick disciples out there trying to have a completely different game plan every week, and sometimes it works out, and a whole lot of times it doesn't, and guys look like they're flip-flopping around all over the place Unlike the Patriots, who seemingly do it with ease, we know it's not easy, but they make it look easy. So Michael Lombardi for our weekly visit, and then after that, I've got Gary Myers. Gary Myers, who uh, has written many successful sports books, but also this time wrote about the Cowboys with How About Them Cowboys, and he goes all the way from his time covering the Cowboys back in the 70s up into current time. It's a fun book to read, and uh, every time I read about the Cowboys, I end up liking them a little bit more, so I'm not I'm not happy about that. I don't like that I hate the Cowboys less than I used to. I feel like a little bit of my true sports fan within me has died, but I had a fun chat with Gary Myers. If you're a Cowboys fan, I think you'll really love it. If you're not a Cowboys fan, I think you'll love it as well, and check out the book on Amazon and everywhere else. How About Them? Cowboys here uh, alongside my Mad Radio co-hosts of Paul Gallant and Mike Meltzer is our interview with Michael Lombardi. And joining us now, uh, you can check out his podcast on The Ringer. You can check out his writing on The Athletic. Uh, you can listen to him here during the football season. Longtime NFL personnel man, Michael Lombardi. Michael, how you doing? I'm great, Seth. Thank you. I appreciate it. Michael, um, I know a lot of people thought that that Super Bowl was boring, and I could see the case to be made for it. I would imagine that you, as a connoisseur of fine play calling, have to think that those might have been two of the best defensive game plans in Super Bowl history. Yeah, you know, I mean, look, I thought the two best coaches on the field qualified for senior citizen discounts at the movie theater. I mean, let's <laughs> face it, you know, all this conversation about Young and Bold and the Zach Taylors and the Matt LaFleurs, I think the Vic Fangios and the Bill Belichicks and the Wade Phillips uh, still have some game left in on them. So, yeah, I did. I thought I didn't think it was boring at all. I think it, it was a strategic game. I don't think Tom Brady played well, which I think factored into uh, when you watch the game tape again, it factored into a lot of the success that, that the Rams had because there were plays to be made. Just the Patriots early on just didn't seem to make them, especially when it was on third down. That's what I was trying to figure out because I thought on first and second down especially, Wade did a great job of mixing zone and man and, and confusing Brady. But then there there were just some times where the ball wasn't coming out of Brady's hands correctly. Yeah, I mean, he did some really strange, unlike Tom Brady things. In fact, up until the last drive of the game, he looked – uh, like his age. I mean, he was not playing to the level. I mean, look, let's face it. If Brady plays a B game, just a Tom Brady B game, uh, they win, you know, they probably win 27 to three. I mean, it's a route, but you know, the fact that they couldn't really get their offense going, I think really became problematic. And that's what really stalled them down. Michael, if Bill Belichick was running the Texans this off season, what, what would he do with Genevieve Clowney? Well, I mean, you know, look, I, I think it's hard to find great talent at, at rushers. I, th I think the Patriots have never really had to, you know, because of Brady, they've always built their salary cap around Brady, which has allowed them to have take lesser deals. You know, uh, I, that's a great question. I think whenever you have a dominant player, I, I think you've got to always try to sign them, especially a front seven player. I think the concerns durability would always bother Bill. But, you know, look, this is the time for the Texans to sign guys that uh, they can sign because Watson's on a rookie deal. And you can really make some hay here now because you don't have to pay a quarterback to make him the highest-paid player on your team. I saw something uh, 
about number one overall picks in free agency the other day, and I'd never really thought about it this way, but it makes sense when you consider what happened with Mario Williams with the Texans, where Mario Williams goes to free agency. His production up to that point hadn't really been incredible, but he was this physical freak, former number one overall pick, and he ends up getting the richest contract for a defensive player or a defensive lineman. Um, is Is there something about that Clowney being a former number one overall pick that every team out there still had a really high grade on him in the draft and that maybe the value, like the perceived value, is even higher than we locally might want to believe it is? Oh, I think it's huge. I think there's a huge value for him. I think if they let him go, he would get uh, – you know, look, there's not too many times that guys that can just disrupt the passing game come to the open market. So I do think he would get a huge deal. And I think sometimes – the home team is always looking at the warts instead of some of the positivity that goes through his play. So I think you have to balance it. Certainly you have to balance it and look at it in a way what's best for your football team. And again, because you have this contract with uh, Deshaun Watson, that's really not going to cost you a lot of money. I think you have to really take, take hold of it. And plus he's one of your better younger players. Watts getting up there in age you know, there's a lot of things that are going on that I think it's important that you keep some of your good young players. Would you be surprised if Nick Foles ended up anywhere other than Jacksonville? No, I wouldn't be surprised. I think, look, there's so many teams that need quarterbacks. I mean, you know, the list goes on and on and on. I mean, what about if I wouldn't be surprised if he ended up in Washington or the New York Giants? You know, I, I think there's so many teams that need these quarterbacks that – would get an opportunity. I think it's going to come down to knowing Nick Foles, knowing what he can do, kind of feeling like Nick Foles, what the offense Nick Foles best executes in. I think that's so critical. I think it's really important. Michael, how does this work with the CBA? Because technically teams aren't supposed to be able to franchise tag guys with the specific intention of trading them. And yet it happens all the time. Do you have to make a good faith effort to really negotiate as a team or, or how does that usually work? Well, I mean, I think, you know, when with these franchise guys and guys that you're looking forward to in the free agency, I mean, you, 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 you know, I think the agents kind of have a sense of the market, right? And so, you know, it's a little bit like the way the NFL sells ads on television. They don't let the TV advertisers, they don't let the networks do it. They do it themselves. So when they put the contract in front of the, net, in front of the networks, they kind of know what the networks are, are kind of thinking. I think that's the same thing. You, there's a, always a kind of a, an idea now, there's certainly some surprises, but I think the law of supply and demand takes hold in free agency because there's so few guys that are really good at make it. Michael, one thing I wondered, and this has been obviously written about this week, and for good reason, the Patriots' adaptability. They play a ton of, uh, I think it was basically man coverage in the regular season, a lot of zone in the playoffs. How realistic is it for other NFL teams to try to model the way the Pats are able to morph and adapt and change week to week? Well, I think it's really hard. I think, first of all, you know, it takes a unique guy uh, like Belichick to understand players and plays. I think that's the that's really the genius behind what the Patriots do. They see players, they see plays. Belichick sees Austin Blythe at right guard. He sees John Sullivan at center. He sees Roger Saffold at right at left guard, and he realizes they don't have very good power. They're a zone blocking team. He realizes that because McVay has built an offense around a team that really can't drop back pass. If I force him into a drop back pass game, then I they've got real problems. It's the same thing that would happen to Mike Shanahan when he was in Denver. If you force Shanahan into a drop-back pass game, they don't have very many drop-back pass plays. All Houston Texans fans have seen this with Gary Kubiak. You force Kubiak into a drop-back pass game, they can't because their line is smaller. They're trying to be athletic. They're trying to block the second level as opposed to the first level. And so it shifts it around. 
but very few teams in the league really understand how to do that because they're so preoccupied with their offense and their defense. We're going to do what we do. You know, when you hear somebody say, we're going to do what we do, well, that's not going to win the game for you. You know, keep doing what you're doing. You're going to lose. Well, on and that so note, I think you have to... sorry, Mike. Go ahead. On that exact note, I didn't mean to cut you off. Were you disappointed in Sean McVay on Sunday? I was disappointed, but not really, because here's why. I think Sean McVay does a great job of covering up for Jared Goff. Sean McVay takes all the bullets for Jared Goff, and he doesn't want to come out and say that I'm limited because this quarterback's limited, but he says so he takes the blame for it. Look, we know this about Goff. If you get into the paint on Goff, if you make Goff play faster, he's not going to be effective. If you hit Goff early in the game, you got a chance to get his eye level down. you got a chance to make him look at the rush. If you hit Goff and you force him there, he doesn't have time to set his feet and make throws, you got a really good chance to win. Goff is a good player, but just look at the numbers. And I talked about this on your show. He's at almost 12 yards, yards per attempt in September. By the time he gets to January, he's below seven. Why? Because people in the league figure him out. They rush him. The Detroit Lions lost by two touchdowns to the Rams. If you watch that tape, you would never think they lost by two touchdowns. They beat up Goff. Goff did not play well. Goff didn't play well against the Bears. He didn't play well against the Eagles. Those games, they understood how to attack. When he plays against Arizona or San Francisco, teams that really have no, that just do what they do, Goff looks like a legitimate quarterback. The real interesting question this offseason is, are you going to pay Goff multi-million? Are you going to make him one of the highest-paid quarterbacks in football? I'm not. And you look at Goff, and yeah, that's a great question. Honestly, I, what can he get better at at this point? Because you have that great coach in Sean McVay, but it does feel that there's so much of Jared Goff attached to Sean McVay. We saw it in the NFC Championship game where they're having the communication issues, and you almost think that Sean McVay is some creature that is inside the body of Jared Goff, who is like some sort of robot operating and doing whatever Sean McVay tells him to do. Yeah, I think there's no doubt. I think, you know... Uh, I, I think what happens is we get caught up into this, you know, uh, notion that he's because he plays really good. I mean, it's like when Mitchell Trubisky throws two complete pass, my Twitter feed gets lit up <laughs> because from Bear fans telling me I'm an idiot, you know. And then when he went to the Pro Bowl, you know, people are like criticizing, you know, like, look, OK, he's if he's a Pro Bowl quarterback, if Mitchell Trubisky's a Pro Bowl quarterback, then I'm going to dance with the with the Russian ballet next year. OK, so, I mean, let's just be real honest. Watch the game. You know, watch the watch the competition of the accuracies in that Pro Bowl sit the Pro Bowl challenge, and tell me that Trubisky can control the football, watch them throw against no rush. Just watch that. You tell me if he can do that. And so you, you just look at it and you say, okay, there's but there's preconceived notions whether it's golf or it's Trubisky. People have this idea in their head when they're really good coaches like Belichick and Vic Fangio. They understand it. They're not listening to the media talk about how great golf is. They know if we do this, this, and this, we have a chance to beat them. Michael Lombardi, if you're back in the GM chair right now, what are you thinking pre-combine about Kyler Murray? Look, I think Kyler Murray is really interesting. I think he's a fascinating player. He's got great foot quickness. But I would say this. It would take a lot for me to be convinced that a 5'9 quarterback in today's NFL can play effectively. I'm sorry. I'm not a height snob. I'm a short, fat guy. So I'm not a height snob, but for quarterbacks, you got to be able to make tight throws in the tight windows and tight parts of the game if you want to win a championship. We're, I'm not trying to build a team that's 8-8. Eight and eight. I'm trying to build a team that wins a title. I don't know any teams that won titles with 5-9 quarterbacks. 
Michael, I'm not a height snob either, and you are short and sturdy. That's what you are. You know, like short, and fat, you, short and sturdy. Uh, Michael, we've really enjoyed having you on this year. I'm sure we'll talk to you a couple times uh, before training camp starts Anytime. next year. Appreciate you. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And Bye-bye. everybody buy Gridiron Genius. This is an awesome book. I know a lot of it. Oh, Sean McVay. Sean McVay reads Gridiron Genius. Yes, so at he least does. he listens to it on Audible on his drive into work. It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to get him over the hump, but maybe got him there. We'll say that. Michael Lombardi, thank you. And like I said, we will check in with, back with Michael Lombardi as the draft approaches, as free agency approaches, all those fun, fun events in the offseason. And uh, here comes Gary Myers. I'm going to start off the interview kind of five minutes into it because we chatted for a while and I had some technical issues. I've, I've been trying to clean those up over the last few weeks. So poor Gary, who thought this interview was uh, going to come out a few weeks ago, has been sitting here waiting. I'm sure, I'm sure uh, in his very busy life, this is the one thing that dominates his attention is where is the Deceptively Fast podcast. But if you uh, enjoy reading, particularly if you're a Cowboys fan or intrigued by Jerry Jones and what the hell makes him tick, how about them Cowboys by Gary Myers, available on Amazon and everywhere else. So here's Gary Myers smack dab in the middle of the interview. One of my favorite stories in the book was when you first got to the Cowboys and it was relayed back to you that Tom Landry... (laughs) Who, who comes off marvelously in this book. Uh, Tom Landry had warned his players that they had a guy from New York covering them now, so they better be careful. I, I, took the, I wore that as a badge of honor. <laughs> <laughs> because, um, you know, quite frankly, Seth, when, when I got to Dallas, I was amazed at the lack of aggression um, covering the team from the other media outlets. That it was for such a long time, the writers like almost like their self worth was based on the fact that you know I covered the Cowboys for the Dallas Morning News or the Dallas Times Herald, and they didn't want to do anything to to stir the pot, you know, for fear of being cut off or um, developing bad relationships. But the fact that I came directly from New York, I had no allegiance to the Cowboys. I was just there to do my job, try to make a good name for myself in the business, I just approached it differently. And when, when Landry said that to the players, I, I had already been in Dallas for about eight months because I got there right at the end of the 81 season. And then I spent the off season writing a lot of stories that hadn't necessarily been written in Dallas before. You know, I ran a whole thing about the, the, the salaries of every player on the team, uh, stories about players being unhappy about their contracts, so um, when Landry got there to training camp and he warns the players at the first team meeting to be careful because we have a New Yorker in our midst and a handful of players couldn't wait to tell me that <laughs> the next morning, I really got a, a, a pretty good kick out of that. Oh, well, the part about you publishing the players' salaries for the first time, and a lot of people today probably wouldn't realize that that didn't always used to be public information. Like, the player side of me, when I read that, I wanted to say, well, thank you, Gary, because that's a huge really? that's a huge negotiating tactic. You know, obviously, you need to know how much other guys on the team and other guys around the league are, are making, but the team really took offense to that, didn't they? Because it hadn't been done before in Dallas. It was a common thing in New York. I mean, the Giants and Jets salaries were printed constantly. Mm-hmm. And so when I got to Dallas and I just said, okay, you know, what have you guys done here before? And have you done this or done that? And when I asked about the salaries, I said, no, we've never done anything. So I was able to get the entire team salary. And 
the players, like you just said, Seth, you know, the players were appreciative of it, appreciative of it, because I, I think it, it drew, uh, shined a light on the fact that the Cowboys, as an organization, were pretty cheap, and their best players weren't making anywhere near as much as the fans thought. So, other than the one mistake I had in there, and I, I, I wrote about that in the book, was um, the person, and it, it was from the Players Association, and all these years later, I can. I can give up my source on it, although I never did until I wrote this book. The guy from the Player Association gave me an outdated contract on Drew Pearson. And I remember that it kind of raised my suspicion because he was making less than, than Butch Johnson or, or Tony Hill, who um, were lesser players, and, uh, and Butch was, was Drew's backup. And I thought, well, maybe it makes sense because maybe Drew's up for a contract and Butch just got his contract last year. So now Drew will surpass him, but it turned out the number was wrong that Drew was making considerably more than Butch Johnson. But Drew calls me up at the paper and I, I really didn't know him very well at that point. And he got really mad and he said, I don't care. You put my salary in the paper, but get the right one. And he was a hundred percent right. Mm -hmm. And, but that was the only one I had wrong. And it, uh, it was my fault because I'm ultimately responsible for it, but I was just, going with the information from people that I thought had firsthand knowledge. And I did learn a lesson after that, that even though you're getting it from people that you think would know on things sensitive like that, where it just kind of stood out, like why is the backup making more than the starter? You always learn to double check those kinds of things. Oh yeah. Now this book starts out um, with a good chunk at the beginning about Jerry Jones and I find myself every time I read something, and especially in this book when you start to divulge some of these, just the more of the personal side of Jerry Jones, this is a fascinating human being. And I, I think from the outside where I've always been, I've always been in that camp of not wanting the Cowboys to be America's team, you know, having that animosity towards mm -hmm. them because of it. Uh, the more I read about Jerry Jones, the more I want to forgive him for all of his flubs and various flaws. Because at the end of the day, it seems more than anything, this is a fun human being to be around, is he not? He is. Um, fortunately, I've never gone drinking with him <laughs> because uh, I don't think I can keep up. Although I'd like to think at this point in his life, he's probably slowing down a little bit. Not that he was excessive, but, you know, uh, I'm not a big drinker and, and he, he's, a very, he's very much a social drinker. But he, he, is, he is fun to be around and um, I know him longer than any sports media person because I was there when he bought the team. I was working for the Dallas Morning News then, and uh, we overlapped by about four months. I moved back to New York in, in May of 89. He got there in February of 89. So I got to know him fairly well in those three or four months because obviously we were writing a lot about Jimmy and Jerry in those days. And um, I, I've always enjoyed being around him. And I really enjoyed interviewing him uh, for the book. Um, the longest interview, or actually I had two two-hour interviews with him, and then the last one was an hour. But the middle one was um, in February last year. And no, actually it was in January. And the reason I remember almost exactly what it is, I was trying to get him all last season. So I talked to him before the season, but then I was trying to get him all during the season. He was all tied up with Zeke Elliott and, and the national anthem thing. And I just couldn't get him. So finally he calls me 
on a Friday as I'm walking in to the press conference where the Giants were announcing that Pat Shermer was the new coach. And so I, I get um, his, his assistant calls me and I go, oh, you know, I've been waiting for months for him to call me. And now he's calling me at one <laughs> point where I, I just couldn't talk to him. I mean, I had my, my day job. I had to protect, you know. So Jerry gets on the phone and I said, Jerry, I'm going into this press conference. You know, can we talk in about two hours? And he goes, here's this. He says, here's my home number. Call me tomorrow. I said, well, you know, tomorrow's a Saturday. You're sure that's okay. Uh, and he goes, no, no. Call me at noon tomorrow. I'll be all set and I can give you as much time as you need. So I, I called him at noon. He answers the phone. Seth, it was, it was so much fun. I had a list of questions that on topics that I hadn't covered in my first interview with him that I wanted to make sure that I addressed. I, I can picture like, like it was yesterday. I was sitting in my, in my office. I had my feet up on the desk. I put the tape recorder down next to my cell phone. I put my cell phone on speaker. I'd ask a question, and I would just sit back for about 10 minutes as he answered it. <laughs> and then I'd lean over and ask another question. Yeah. It, I just hope he was as relaxed as I was because it was really a lot of fun. And he he gave me two hours. He would have given me four, but I, I didn't want to eat up his entire Saturday afternoon. But he, he was very entertaining and forthcoming uh, when we spoke. And um, you know, I think in the book that I point out the good things about him, in which there are many, especially his business acumen. But I always po- I always also point out the negatives, and that's his stubbornness in remaining the general manager of the team and how that's contributed to the fact it's been two decades since they're in the Super Bowl. So I, I, I think I was able to uh, approach this and, and present a very balanced picture that you can like him as a person and maybe like you, your mind changed a little bit about him, but still shake your head somewhat. How's a guy who's so smart not realize that being the general manager of an NFL team takes more than just being a fan and thinking that you know as much as as trained professionals in that area. So there's the good and the bad with him. But I think the overall picture is at least on a personal level that you wind up liking him. Well, and that's what I found so fascinating in the book. And I'm, I'm only halfway through with it. So maybe there's more answers on the other side of this. Um, but that element uh-huh. of, of him wanting to be the GM, insisting on remaining the GM. And there's an anonymous GM that you quote in there who talks about how perhaps, you know, being such a brilliant business person, a, a PT Barnum as the GM called him, um, and actually being a successful football team might be mutually exclusive. But I wonder, like, the business side of things shouldn't preclude the team from having success if you just had a competent GM. Is there some psychological need there that, that he just flat out cannot let go of that? Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's more because he really believes he's the best man for the job. And the way he explained it to me was, teams change general managers as often as they change coaches. And every time you change a general manager, you change the scouts, you change your philosophy, and it's really starting all over again from both the the GM office and the coach's office. So as long as he was the GM, although he should have fired himself, um, as long as he was the GM, he knew that they would have continuity in, in that office. And then the only thing that would change would be the coach. So, but, you know, I, I do want to say this, and I, I learned a lot about the inner workings that I presented in the book from Stephen Jones, who um, really learned from the 40 years that Bill Parcells 
was the head coach there. And, and Bill really liked Stephen. And it's not easy for Bill to like people and to give him your endor- his endorsement. So when Bill tells me that he thinks Stephen was really sharp and he's a good football guy, you know, I tend to believe that. So I think that Jerry, um, although he's certainly opinionated, and he want, and I get to, you probably haven't got to the point in the book yet where I really get the play by play of what happened when Jerry wanted to take Johnny Manziel, but um, Stephen talked him out of it. And so when Jerry has one of these wild ideas that's not good for the organization, it's not like he just says, "Okay, we're doing it my way," and you know, I own the team, I can do whatever I want. He does listen to the people around him. You alluded to. 2017 being a very busy year for Jerry Jones earlier in this interview. And in the book, you talk about that because he's inducted into the Hall of Fame. A week later, Roger Goodell notifies him that Ezekiel Elliott's going to be suspended. And then the national anthem controversy just uh, just amplifies when Donald Trump starts addressing it and bringing up in his rallies and speeches. And you do a good job documenting the relationship between Jerry Jones and Donald Trump and then also Bob Kraft and Donald Trump, because I I didn't know about the Bob Kraft. Um, one, I I had forgotten that he was a huge Obama supporter, but that Trump had right. uh, really stepped in and offered him a lot of moral support after Bob Kraft's wife had passed away. And this this brings up a question that my co-host Mike Meltzer and uh, Paul Glant and I have asked this year: Why? Mm-hmm. Donald Trump is a man who I think even his close advisors would tell you is a hard man to give advice that he doesn't want to hear or to make him uh, follow your advice. How is it that Donald Trump hasn't commented on the anthem controversy at all this year? I think it's, well, first of all, he certainly has more important things on his plate, but then he did last year too. Right. You know, it shouldn't have been anything that he ever got involved with in the first place, but I really think that the the whole issue is kind of died down somewhat that I, I mean, I can't name more than a couple of players who really have continued to kneel. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, if, if the league hadn't come out with these new rules in, in May that they later rescinded, you know, that if you're not going to stand for the anthem and you know, stay in the locker room, if they had just well, let well enough alone at that point, um, I think this thing would have really uh, petered out somewhat. Um, if you remember, towards the end of last season, uh, not even Malcolm Jenkins, who is the head of the Players' Coalition, uh, he wasn't even raising his fist anymore down the stretch and then the playoffs and the Super Bowl that um, the league pledging a lot of money to the causes that were important to these players had really quieted things down. And then because the league is often its worst enemy, they decide to, you know, adopt these rules in May. If you're not going to stand, then, then stay in the locker room. And if you're going to, if you're not going to stand and you're on the field, you know, this and that can happen to you. If they had just kept quiet and let hope that things picked up in 2018, where they left off in 2017, there wouldn't have been an issue at all. And they, they quickly, you know, backtracked on that new rule And I don't remember many stories about the anthem at all this season. And, you know, Trump probably lost interest in it because it doesn't appear that his attention span, you know, is more than, you know, a couple of months in any one issue. And he probably figured he made his point 
and uh, and it was time to move on to something else. That was the the conspiratorial part of me wants to say that somehow Jerry Jones and Bob Kraft and the other owners broke through to Donald Trump somehow. I just I know that breaking through to Trump in one moment doesn't necessarily affect his behavior later on down the line. And I guess what I what I wondered about this season was whether Trump, whether it was still an issue or not, was going to bring it up and make it an issue. Because like as you point out in the book, it had, it had somewhat become less of an issue until Trump you know, in, in wished that an owner would fire a player at some point. And that was when all the players kneeled uh, in unison that that That's week. Right. Yeah, and Jerry Jones had his kind of awkward moment where they went out and kneeled on the uh, on the on the fifty yard line. But uh, it it was a very interesting yeah. part of the book, and it brought up a lot of elements that I hadn't thought of. There was another there was another part of the Troy Aikman Michael Irvin saga that I had kind of forgotten about, and you bring it up that when Michael Irvin was on trial. Uh, way back when for being caught mm-hmm. in that hotel room with the prostitutes and the, and the cocaine, that Troy Aikman showed up in support at the trial. And you alluded to this that Aikman might have faced some scrutiny for that or for some criticism. And I guess it, it never occurred to me that that might be the case. Was there criticism of him, like that he was somehow tacitly approving of Michael Irvin's misbehavior? Yes. and um, But I think that Troy was held in such high regard um, in Dallas and, and being a guy of, you know, the highest character that, uh, if there was any criticism, it certainly wasn't very loud. And it was more like, how can you support this guy, um, based on the charges against him? And, and Troy just made a point of saying that he's, he's a loyal friend and his presence at the trial was not to be confused with, you know, him condoning anything that Michael had done, but he felt it really important to show Michael that not only had they won three championships together, but that he was sticking by him off the field. And when I talked to Michael about it for my book, and this is, you have to remember, this is 20 years ago now. Um, he got very emotional talking about Troy and how he would do anything for Troy. And he actually tried to warn Troy not to come to the trial because he didn't want any, anybody uh, thinking bad of him, you know, guilt by just association with him. Um, and, and Troy basically said, you know, the hell with that. You're my friend and I'm not going to turn my back on, on you um, when you're going through this. So I'm going to be there for you. And, you know, to this day, like I mentioned, you know, Michael still gets emotional talking about the loyalty of Troy. Well, and, and Michael Irvin's a fascinating individual, and every time I've had a chance to talk to him or, or just even be around it or in the same room as him, uh, it's amazing the effect he has on a room, the way he can talk to you and engage you. And mm-hmm. I, But there's almost, a, like at a time in his life, and I would imagine 20 years ago, it almost seemed like there was too much life in him. Would you have predicted back then, 20 years ago, that he was going to be where he is now and, and kind of as well-adjusted and successful as he is? Well, no, I mean, because um, even in his post-career life, he had his ups and downs. He lost his job at ESPN. Um, But now I think he's somewhat, and listen, like Troy, I'm not condoning anything that he's done. Um, But he has become somewhat of a target because he has been accused of things that, to the best of my knowledge, you know, have had no validity. Uh, There was something years ago in a hotel room in Miami that, he had even, he wasn't even, he had left the hotel room 
at a period of time that somebody was accusing him of doing something. Mm-hmm. So um, the fact that he that he's now a mainstay uh, on NFL Network, I, I'm really happy for him because he he is a good person who just went off the tracks for a while. And when you're young and you have a ton of money and you're a cowboy in Dallas and everybody is buying you drinks or giving you things they shouldn't give you and, uh, and you're taking advantage of it, you know, you got to be really strong to, to turn it down. And, you know, he grew up in a family with, I can't remember whether he had 16 brothers or sisters or 17 brothers and sisters. And he became somewhat of the patriarch of the family and was providing and still is for many of his brothers and sisters and their kids. Uh, that's a lot of pressure. And the way he reacted to it, you know, wasn't in a positive way because he got himself in trouble, but I'm really proud of him because I've known him since the day he was drafted and I'm really proud of him. And I've told him this, that he's been able to turn his life around that, He's now one of the main voices on NFL Network, that the league has embraced him, and that more often than people know that he, he does the right thing. And I, I'm just hoping that he stays on this path that he's on now because he's got a great career going for him, and, um, and he really is a good person who has done some stupid things. The book is How About Them Cowboys by Gary Myers. He's also the author of Brady versus Manning, uh, as well as many other great NFL football-related, sports-related books. Uh, Gary, this is what always happens. I I have like 400 questions for you that I would ask you, but I'll let you go right now. <laughs> I just uh, encourage everybody to buy the book. It's been a great read so far. I really look forward to the rest of it. So that's it, everybody, for this episode. And as we approach the off-season for 2019, we'll uh, we'll kind of experiment with the format and see what else we have in store. We won't have the weekly visits with Michael Lombardi anymore. We'll probably get a broader diversity of guests. I'll still have Sean Pendergast on a bunch. And um, we'll just see where this takes us. Please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else you get your podcast. Please, if you enjoy it, tell a friend about it. And uh, really grateful to all of you that have been listening so consistently. I was surprised. I was really surprised we had as many listeners uh, tune in as consistently as we did. Not not because I lack confidence, but there's just so many options out there with podcasts these days. And uh, as you guys know, I listen to a bunch of different non-sports podcasts. So I really, really genuinely am appreciative of the fact that you lend your ears to the Deceptively Fast podcast when you do. So uh, feel free to leave a review on iTunes, subscribe so it gets right to your eye, uh, into your inbox, and I will see everybody later this week. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See t